Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Welcome back, OISers. This is Tom Salemi. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. This is episode number 216. Our guest today is Jeffrey Now. Jeff is the president and CEO of Oyster Point Pharma. Oyster Point has done a lot in a very little amount of time, and we'll get into that in the podcast. Most recently, though, it raised $93 million for a Series B, closed on that in February, brought in some terrific investors. We'll get into that as well. And uh, Jeff and I talked a bit about how they were able to accomplish so much so quickly, and also where could the company be headed? Is this the kind of company that could go public? So lots of great thoughts here. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. I know you'll also enjoy OIS at ASCRS. It's happening on May 2nd in San Diego. If you haven't registered yet, go to ois.net. Make sure you sign up and join us in San Diego. Now let's hear from Jeffrey Now of Oyster Point Pharma. Well, Jeff, now welcome back to the podcast. Tom, thanks for having me on again. When you raised your $93 million and we're going to have you on the podcast, I had envisioned sort of uh, looking back into the history of Oyster Point, sort of chronicling its growth. And then I, I looked at when our first podcast was, and it was about a year ago, a year and a, a month ago. Uh, this thing is, uh, has grown like wildfire in terms of uh, clinical progress and, and fundraising progress. So Let's uh, let's hit upon that uh, without getting into details of the past year as to what the events were, because we will cover those later on. What has the last year been like uh, culturally as an atmosphere? I mean, does it feel like you're you're traveling at a kind of a breakneck pace or has it been slow and measured and it just uh, you're just getting a lot done with uh, with very little fury? It's an excellent question. You know, I think. The first things first is it's just really a testament to the team we have here. And we have a, a really great group, you know, a, as startup pharmaceutical slash biotechs go, uh, you know, we have a total of eight employees. So it's not a big company. But with those eight employees, we have been able to accomplish some some really amazing things over the last year. And really, we started hiring employees in January of 2018. And so uh, just filing the INDs. Uh, getting all the clinical development programs up. And then in 2018, you know, we pushed treating 500 patients. So it was an amazing year. Uh, this team here is great. Uh, there's There are people here on the team uh, that have worked with me for over a decade, really great at, uh, you know, execution. Uh, we all come from the retina side of the business. So I think now being on the front of the eye where things move a little bit quicker, it's really allowed us to leverage uh, a lot of our skills and, and history in running clinical trials in a, in a really positive way. Um, you know, on the, on the retina side of the business with age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, you know, the timelines are just not as quick. And uh, those trials are very uh, big and and in some ways cumbersome. And so when you come to a dry eye trial, it's, it's really a, a breath of fresh air. But I really attest what we did in 2018 to the team here. Um, and, and they just executed flawlessly. That's, that's great. And, and that's interesting because dry eye, of course, has uh, historically been a difficult thing to, to test. I, I guess I want to delve more into the, the, the transition to the, the front of the eye. What is that what is that like? I'm not, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I've never studied the front nor the back of the eye or worked in either. 
Is it a completely different mindset? Is it a completely different way to approach things going from the, the back to the front? Or is it still ophthalmology and you're looking at the eye? Yeah, I think I think there's probably um, a couple of key points to keep in mind is, you know, I, I, I kind of look at the front of the eye where we are today, maybe a little bit like where we were 12 years ago in the retina space where there's certainly interest, but in the last decade in the retina space, the interest and the appetite for developing new therapies has just blown up. And I think the front of the eye, although the innovation is definitely there uh, when it comes to medical devices and pharmaceuticals, I don't know if the attention's necessarily there from a strategic sort of big pharma focus as it is in the retina. And I think that's where we're headed right now. So um, I think that there's um, a lot of interest uh, now on diseases at the front of the eye, uh, certainly with uh, the advent of uh, all of these uh, surgical therapies that are out there now, whether it be through refractive ther- uh, surgery, whether it be through MIGS, you know, that really opens up the space for some additional innovation on the pharma side, I think. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think there are differences, but there are certainly similarities. Um, I would say front of the eye and back of the eye are, are still seen as two different spaces, um, but I, I do think there's a lot of opportunity for novel therapeutics and innovation on the front of the eye. And, and I hope more companies like Oyster Point, you know, focus in that area. I would suggest a company that's raised over $100 million in just over a year and a few months of existence suggests that things are heating up in the front of the eye. So I will get into the financing in a minute. But I wanted to just follow up on, on uh, the structure of the company. You mentioned you had eight people. Uh, are you running a, a virtual shop? How are you getting all of this done? You had th- at least three trials going on, three later stage clinical trials and some earlier ones as well. You mentioned the filing with the FDA. Uh, uh, can you shed, shed a little light on how are you getting it done actually day to day? First thing is I don't want to um, shine the light on that process as it being the norm. Drug development is hard. It takes a long time. Um, it is complicated. We have... Um, I would say, uh, walked into a scenario where not only do we have a great team here, but there's also some, some luck and, and, um, some fortuitous things that have happened to us, you know, where the company, um, was able to identify some molecules that just happened to be very easy to work with, uh, from a development perspective, uh, right here in our own backyard, we found a, uh, contract manufacturing operation where we're able to manufacture our nasal sprays uh, at a level that will support us through, you know, the first five to eight years of post-launch on a high-speed line. So that's that's not normal. Um, you know, we, we just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And luckily, they're right in our backyard. So it really works out well for us. And then we do leverage some partners outside. And, um, you know, I think my team has, has done an excellent job. We really look at all of these partners outside as an extension of the company and have established uh, some really great relationships and have some amazing working relationships with those groups. And, you know, the combination of all of those factors coming together has allowed us to move as quickly as, as we have. I think we've in 2018, though, the, the other thing that we did that was a little bit unique is we ran two assets in parallel phase 2B development. I, I think that's not the norm. Uh, and, you know, it, it, was a, it really worked out well for the company. We ended up in a situation where we had two clinical assets that from a safety and efficacy profile 
looked similar and had great results. Um, one of them, you know, has some advantages uh, from the standpoint of us moving towards a commercialization quicker and cheaper. And therefore, we, we've chosen an asset to move forward. But, you know, we really uh, ran two molecules head to head. And that second molecule will uh, we'll continue to do development on. And we have some other ideas for where that may play in. But, you know, to do all this in one year, um, it's... It's certainly not all just execution. There is a bit of luck that, that played in there. And, and I certainly want to stress that it is not the norm. And my experience in the past in drug development is not getting this much done in a year. <laughs> we completed three phase two Bs and we started two additional. So in total, um, at any one given point in time during the course of uh, 2018, we had five uh, different trials ongoing. And some mm -hmm. of those we manage from the inside. Uh, some of them we do work with CROs on the outside. Interesting. Well, let's talk a bit about the uh, the compounds. I want to get into the financing a little bit, but uh, you had uh, OCO2 ran, was, went through the Rainier trial and the Pearl trial, and OCO1 went through onset. And uh, Rainier and Pearl, you had announced the results in October. And I know you and I talked about the Pearl trials, I think, last summer. Uh, so where are you now? You've got, you've got obviously, uh, a coffer full of uh, capital. What's the what's the plan for uh, the next stage of clinical testing? You know, as I said, we had really successful trials across the board. Uh, one of the interesting things about what we're doing is um, the two molecules that we developed uh, looked very similar from a clinical safety and efficacy perspective across trials, uh, but also across molecules as well. So if I were to lay the data um, over you know, OCO1 over the top of OCO2, uh, you you wouldn't know which molecule you're looking at. And so that's important. We've, we've really identified a class of molecules or at least a subset of that class that we think are really important. And then from trial to trial, we have reproducibility. So we have high probability as we move forward that we'll be able to reduce, uh, reproduce these results. Uh, the company is moving now from phase 2B to phase 3, uh, we've had our end of phase two meeting with the FDA, so we have a very clear plan uh, on moving forward in the design of the phase three trial, which we hope to talk about at uh, OIS at ASCRS. And um, one of the one of the really positive things that's happened to the company uh, to also speed up this process is uh, we did submit the onset clinical trial as uh, to the FDA as one of our registration trials. If you remember back. Um, in the onset clinical trial, in the 0.1% dose, we hit both signs and symptoms endpoints, actually multiple symptom endpoints uh, in that study. And uh, that trial was submitted to the agency as part of our end of phase two briefing package. And uh, we have some agreement that that trial would satisfy uh, one of our uh, registration requirements. So we have one additional phase three trial to do um, to uh, then submit for approval. And we intend to start that in the midpoint of this year. So this year you'll be running one phase three trial and then some phase one trials? So we'll be running uh, one phase three trial for our OCO1 compound. And then uh, we have four other molecules that we are working on in various earlier stages of development. Although the OCO2 molecule that we have been working on is, is again, another phase three ready asset um, that we, were, we are actually very interested in some additional indications that... Um, we'll probably be ready to talk about a little bit later in the year. So why not go forward with, with a phase three of OCO2? From, again, I'll, I'll go back to just 
reiterating that we have eight employees. <laughs> yeah. we, so hire some more. Come on, Jeff. Yeah. We're, we're, we're working on it. Although uh, <laughs> making sure you're keeping an eye on the ball while you're, while you're building a company is a fun prospect. Um, the, you know, I think the two molecules, like I said, look very similar uh, from a safety and efficacy standpoint, but obviously with OCO1 being a 505B2 molecule, the amount of capital that will be needed to get that drug to an approval, as well as how quickly we can move that drug, because we can leverage much of the preclinical safety work. Obviously, that drug's been uh, in 20 million patients worldwide. So a lot of safety data uh, to support that product. It just allows us to move to the clinic uh, that much quicker. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation to let you know that it's not too early to sign up for OIS at ASRS. That's happening on July 25th in Chicago. In fact, if you register before April 25th, you'll save $200 off of the full price. So please don't wait. Go to OIS.net to register for OIS at ASRS. And if you know you're going to OIS at AO as well, you can still benefit from our double play. Go to OIS.net. You'll see our bundle packages there. You can also look up the triple play if you want to attend all three OISs, including OIS at ASCRS, which again is happening on May 2nd. Now let's get back into this conversation with Jeffrey Now. Pardon me if you've, if you've said this, but how has that, that drug been in 20 million patients? Yeah, so the, the active pharmaceutical ingredient for that compound is the same uh, API as in the drug Chantix, which is varenicline for smoking cessation. So uh, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of patients uh, worldwide that have been on uh, that drug. Uh, certainly, the, the dose of the drug that we're delivering is reformulated for delivery into the intranasal cavity. And, um, you know, certainly at a much lower dose than the oral, uh, the daily oral dose, but lots of experience with that drug. OCO2 does have clinical experience. It was uh, run through phase two clinical trials for other indications, uh, but certainly not in 20 million patients and um, not, not an approved product. So OCO1 provides us a number of advantages on getting to that market faster. And are all of your drugs delivered through the, the nasal spray? Or a nasal spray? Uh, some of the drugs in the pipeline that we're working on are, certainly will not be nasal uh, products. OCO1 and OCO2 at this point in time are. Does that make trials uh, any different, easier, or, or more difficult? I mean, they're rel- relatively easy to administer, I suppose, better than eye drops. Um, does it change the, the, the formula of running a trial when you do a nasal spray? It can be complicated. So uh, I think from a when we look at it from a patient perspective, I would say a vast majority of the population, at least in the U.S., has experience at some point in their life with taking a nasal spray. So this is not a novel way of delivering um, pharmaceuticals. And certainly for many of the patients that fall within our uh, clinical studies, you know, they they are much happier to use a nasal spray than they are an eye drop. So they don't have to worry about missing their eye. They don't they don't have to worry about you know, the sensation that's associated with delivering them. And the nice part about the nasal spray and, and the way we deliver the nasal spray is the receptors are very anterior in the nasal cavity that we're going after. So it's very easy for the patient to deliver a dose to stimulate those receptors. It's not like delivering a corticosteroid for seasonal rhinitis where you're trying to get the drug way back into the sinuses. Um, so that offers us a really comfortable and convenient nasal spray 
where the patient's able to deliver drug, um, you know, pretty readily. Now, from a needle spray development perspective, again, here's another little bit of luck in that we have some really nice water soluble compounds, and so you know that that allows us some advantages over. Uh, other contemporary uh, companies in the nasal spray realm where they're having to deal with suspensions or complex biological molecules and spraying them through a nasal pump, which can cause, you know, some complication. And so, you know, we're, we're uh, I think, fortunate in that regard. Um, and we've also taken the pain uh, internally to, to make sure that the team is on board with doing what's right for the patient. And so, the one nice thing about our products is we've delivered, we've developed them as preservative free products right out of the gate. The easier pathway would have been to put a preservative in there and to move forward with development. And I've really tasked the team to do what is best for the patient. And so we have uh, some nice uh, preservative free nasal pumps that allow uh, the product to be delivered as a preservative-free formulation and do not allow ingress of bacteria into the pump. So I think that's going to be better for the patient in the long run. What is the, the downside of a, of a preservative? And is, is, it, is it related to the bacteria or is, it, is that completely separate issue? Why, why is it important for it to be preservative-free? Yeah, I mean, depending upon the preservative that you use, um, you know, there, and this is a similar uh, problem that we see in topical ophthalmics, you, you've probably heard of thimerosal and some of the other preservatives that have been used out there. There are some small portion of patients that do have sensitivities to them. Um, and it probably does increase some low level of inflammation with this foreign substance, either on the surface of the eye or in the, in the nasal cavity. So Europe is, is light years ahead of the United States and really pushing for all products to be preservative free. We're sort of catching up. Um, and, um, you know, I think we're going to be you know, maybe the the number two product on the market here in the U.S. that's a preservative-free nasal formulation. I joked earlier about you're bringing on more people, but uh, in all seriousness, what is next? How do you build a phase three company and how different is it from a phase two company? Yeah, well, I think uh, this is an unusual phase two company and that we've been able to get here with uh, such a small amount of human capital. And I think now really the challenge is um, on that side of the business to really build a world-class team um, and uh, bring the company uh, to a point where uh, we have you know, not good, good depth um, in all the various aspects as we transition from phase two to phase three. Now we're starting to really think about what's beyond phase three commercialization. Uh, and that impacts not only manufacturing, it impacts uh, sales and marketing and building out sales teams. And so now we're really focused on, you know, let's let's get a world-class team of uh, management in here that really can run a company. Uh, we've got some plans uh, as we go forward to, you know, build this company out to be uh, something really great. I think in the ophthalmic space, as you probably see, uh, we see a lot of consolidation at the top. We see a lot of startup work. You know, the midsize ophthalmic pharma company is a little bit of a dinosaur to a certain extent. And, and there's a few out there striving to be. And I think, you know, we're planning to be in that category. And when you have a product that's upwards of a billion in market potential, um, I think I think that's, uh, you know, something that you really need to think about. And let's talk a bit about uh, the process of, of fundraising. I was looking at your uh, 
your list of events, and you actually presented it. I didn't see there. I didn't make it inside of J.P. Morgan, but you presented it at J.P. Morgan, which I thought was pretty remarkable for again uh, a year-old startup. Uh, what was what is the process? Well, first, tell me about how was presenting at J.P. Morgan. Was this your first time? I assume presenting at J.P. Morgan. Yeah, this was this was my first time. This is I think I've been to J.P. Morgan maybe twelve times, but probably the second time I've actually had a badge to go inside the meeting. <laughs> So uh, that that's always a, a a bit of a badge of honor to to just get a badge and then to to present the, is a whole nother uh, level and and so you know we were we were really fortunate and we really appreciate the guys over at J P Morgan for giving us an invite you know for a company our size it's it's really great to be in an environment like that to be able to present in in front of those uh, caliber of investors um, and for me personally it was it was fun it was a, it was a great time. Um, you know, I will say the room's smaller than the OIS, uh, <laughs> slightly. <laughs> yeah. what, uh, and what did, what day did you present on? Uh, we presented on, I think Monday. Oh, uh, all right. Correctly. Yeah. That's so it was still, still a good day. Yeah. Prime time. Yeah. That's so, right. So what was that part of the fundraising process? Well, let me back up my question. What, when did you start fundraising? Uh, you raised, you ultimately closed in 93 million. What was your, your target? And talk a bit about the, the process, how you, uh, how you rounded up this really great uh, syndicate of investors. So we, we have a great, um, a great management team here. Mark Murray, our CFO, and Michael Ackerman, our chairman. You know, we really started this process uh, in the August, September uh, time last year. And this was before we had readouts from our onset and Rainier trials. So this is while those trials were still ongoing. Um, so for us, it was a bit of a risk in that we were going to go out and start getting everybody up to speed on Oyster Point, uh, knowing that we were going to have um, some some pretty important data readouts um, and, and obviously not knowing what the outcome was going to be. But, you know, we, we, we put together a great plan, which is uh, we presented to... Uh, banks, we presented to venture capitalists, we presented to uh, what I would, you know, what the, what the, is term, our term crossover investors. And we intended to really get everybody up to speed before the data came out. So that once that data came out, um, we weren't wasting a lot of time really telling the story. The story was out there. They knew the story. They knew when data was coming. And then after data, we were able to really move um, really efficiently in going back to everybody and saying, okay, you know, we, we talked to you about the story, you know, all about Oyster Point. We told you that there was data coming. Here's the data. Let's go through it. And uh, here's our plan moving forward. And we initially went out um, to raise an amount that was less than 93 um, and ultimately ended up uh, with, with more capital than um, we intended. But I think it's due to a couple of things, including a great investor syndicate that we put together, um, as well as wanting to be in a position where, <coughs> excuse me, we had optionality uh, with uh, 2019. So we wanted to raise enough capital that would take us to FDA approval, which we, we accomplished. But we also wanted the option to bring in a syndicate that would either see us through with another private financing or potentially uh, a public financing later in the year. You obviously have a great uh, connection with, uh, we'll 
with Bill Link. I know Versant ventured and had invested initially, although I know he's not the Versant rep on your board. Uh, Claire is, um, and you've got Flying L now in there. Uh, is in Falcon also? Are they also an investor? Yes, they are. So, yeah. so you've got a nice, uh, nice family of funds there. And, and uh, I did talk to uh, Ben Sai at Invis about the investment, which is a, another great fund to have on there. I mean, do you are you building this company? What did, do you, do you have an, a, a a financial no, not an ultimate outcome in mind in building this company? Is this uh, an IPO company? Is this a company to be acquired? Do those thoughts even enter your head? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of those thoughts enter into our head. And I think when a company gets to the stage where we're at, you know, one of the important things um, that that we ultimately had to come uh, to to an agreement on is, you know, what what is it that we're building? Are we building a company that ultimately you know, we want to be acquired. Are we building a company that we want to build a company and take it and commercialize this product ourselves and start to bring in an additional products and really build an organization? And I think, you know, that you make different decisions along the way, whether your goal is, is path A or path B. We wanted to bring in a syndicate of investors that uh, were not looking to just take this company and just flip it into the public markets. Um, we wanted to be very thoughtful about what's the next step in the life cycle of the company. We wanted to be very thoughtful about who we brought into this syndicate so that um, if we all decided that we were going to do a public offering, then um, we could. And if we decided that we were going to stay private, we could also do that. I mean, some of that is also just wanting that optionality because as we were transitioning from 2018 into 2019, if you remember back, there was a lot of turmoil in the market. Uh, there was questions about what 2019 would bring um, from an IPO perspective, because obviously 2018 was such a great year for patient for companies being able to get out into the public market. Um, and now, you know, the other thing that we have to contend with is uh, 2020 being an election year. And so as the further we get into the year, the the more potential turmoil uh, that hits the markets. And so, you know, we really wanted to be well capitalized uh, through FDA approval um, and not have to raise capital if we didn't want to. Uh, but we wanted that option. And so, you know, the group that we have, um, I think, really represents a great group of investors that are smart, thoughtful um, and really support the company in making the best decisions moving forward. Yeah, I can't imagine 2020 being filled with turmoil because of the election. No way, could not happen. <laughs> Good call. I didn't. I didn't think you'd factor that into it, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, final question, and we talked about this when we we spoke the first time over a year ago. Uh, just the the, the uh, off the tech experience, the phase three experience. How is a phase three? I mean, that's obviously different than a phase two, but. What are the differences in, in a phase three trial to phase two? And how does your past experience in, in managing phase three trials, how is that influencing Oyster Point going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when you're, when you're in phase two, um, for the most part, you know, the, obviously the size of the trial and the number of centers that you're involved with um, is much smaller. And so um, I would say by and large, the ability for the company to be more engaged um, and more present uh, with those studies um, is there. So, you know, when you have to manage a study of three sites or four sites, it's very easy to sort of keep in touch with those sites, make sure 
that you're understanding what's going on there in the course of the study. Make sure that you're giving all the support that you need uh, to those centers as they have questions and they're screening patients. You know, when we start to get up to a phase three size study uh, and we exponentially uh, expand the number of centers that we're using, you know, that dynamic changes. And there's there's not a really easy way to keep it steady, but you have to really try to minimize the amount of change. Um, and so that's part of the reason for our, our headcount going up is, is we want to make sure that we're still giving the same attention um, at the site level, uh, as well as, um, you know, with, with our CRO partners that we did in the phase two trials, um, and make sure that we have good oversight there, um, and that we're, we're planning appropriately. So, you know, one of the things with dry eye trials, um, that I think is a little bit different in many cases to what we did in the retina world is, you know, we often do block enrollment. There are so many patients out there with dry eye disease that, we have, you know, 10, 20, 30 patients come in at a visit at a site on a given day and enroll in a study. <clears throat> in the AMD world or the, the diabetic macular edema world, that is not a possibility. So you're waiting for patients to roll through, especially now in the days when uh, anti-VEGF therapy is so prevalent to find a treatment naive patient is a needle in the haystack. And so, you know, that, that block enrollment is a bit of a godsend, but also can create some challenges. And so planning um, and execution is critical uh, as we move to phase three. But I, I have high confidence in our team. Uh, we got a great group of, of people, uh, both inside and, and in our, with our CRO partners. And I, I think phase three is going to be excellent. I mean, the other, the other key factor is um, that I think is important for us. Uh, we have, a, I think we have a high probability of success just based on the fact that we have highly reproducible data. Uh, the study design is not changing from phase 2B to phase 3 other than uh, increasing the number of patients that will be enrolled. Um, and, and outside of that, we've tried to keep all other factors really uh, stable. Terrific. Well, it's, I appreciate all the great news coming out of Oyster Point. We'll happy to have you on again next time you, uh, you achieve a, your next important milestone. And uh, I really appreciate your... Uh, thoughtful responses a lot's going on over there and it's clear that you're thinking things through great well thanks tom it's always a it's always a pleasure to be on and uh, appreciate it and we look forward to uh seeing you at the uh ois at ascrs well that is a wrap thank you so much jeffrey now for joining us again on the ois podcast thanks also to our health team including our producer rafael Ascamilla, for putting together this podcast Finally, thank you, OIS podcast listeners, for joining us once again. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. You can get future podcasts sent directly to your listening device. Please also tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. You can do that on social media, or you can do that uh, however you want to do, via email, via text. You can share these things on your phone. Just push the share button and uh, let other people know you've learned a lot about Oyster Point Pharma. Finally, if you'd like to reach out to me, I am on Twitter. So if you do share this on Twitter, you can tag me. I am at MedTechTom, or you can reach me via email, tom at healthogy.com. Healthogy, it's like the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y. Healthogy produces this podcast and the OIS events, as well as many other healthcare podcasts and conferences. So go to healthogy.com for more information about what we do. Thanks again for tuning in and tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the OIS podcast.